Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. So great to worship with you all this morning and thanks Pastor Randall and team for leading us. Um, Yeah, it's a good morning. It's good to be here. It's good to be with you all. Let's uh, pray together before the message this morning. Heavenly Father, we sang in the first song, we welcome you in this place. And Father, I know that you are moving amongst us by your spirit. And my prayer this morning was that there would be a tangible sense of your presence um, working in our hearts by your spirit, pouring your love into our hearts, a love for one another, a love for you, and a love for our neighbors. And I pray in this place today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would hear what you are speaking. Whether it's the words of the sermon or the words of the worship song or simply by being in this place and having our mind and heart directed towards you, I pray we would hear your voice to us today. As we invite you, Lord Jesus, to be speaking, I ask, Holy Spirit, that we would receive your words today. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me start by asking you a question. You know how I do this sometimes. So... These questions are kind of designed to see what your view of God is. Who who do you think God is? And and so the first question I want to ask you is, where is Jesus, do you think, when you sin and mess up your life? When you do something you know is wrong, when you've sinned, when you've messed up your life, does Jesus turn his back on you until you get your act together? Does he shake his head disapprovingly at you, telling you that he expected more from you? Or does he open up his arms, offering us what he always offers us? His blood to cleanse the sin, his life to cover our life, and a robe of righteousness to take as our own. Depending on how you view God, this is one of those questions that I sometimes ask people when I'm meeting with them one-on-one, when they're struggling in their faith, and I go, you know, how do you view God? Is he the disappointed, angry, disapproving father? Is he the loving, gracious savior? How you answer those questions matter. Now most of, us, most of you, I hope you will know that when you sin, Jesus doesn't turn his back on you. He doesn't tell you to get your act together in this really disappointed, disapproving way. But what Jesus does is he comes into the mess of our lives and he forgives us and he heals us and he teaches us. As long as we run to him and do not hide from him, he is the one who restores and forgives and transforms us over and over and over again. Now most of us have the privilege of not having our worst moments or our worst sin exposed to the whole community. Most of us have been able to deal with some of those dark places of our hearts and the privacy of our own souls, you know, speaking with Jesus one-on-one, maybe confessing sin to one other trusted person. But imagine, imagine if your very worst moment in your life, the worst thing you've ever done, your worst sin was on display for your entire community to see. Now, some of you might know what that is like, I, I feel horrible for you if you do, but most of us don't have to, you know, it wouldn't play on the screen behind me, you know, the worst moment of our lives. And the truth is, no one wants their sin exposed. No one wants to be caught in the act. 
And in our text today, we have a story of a woman caught in an incredibly shameful, humiliating situation. It's a woman who's caught by the religious leaders in the very act of adultery. And they drag her into a crowd and they publicly humiliate her. And so here in our encounter with Jesus today, we have Jesus in the presence of a person who is completely exposed, who has no defense on display for for the whole crowd to see. This is in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Before we jump into that part of the text, I want to give you the backstory to what's happening here. So here's the backstory. Jesus has just gone to Jerusalem at at the festival of the shelters. And at the height, at the climax of the festival, just before the priest is about to pour the water down onto the altar to signify the presence of God, Jesus calls out in a loud voice, I am the living water. And he kind of wrecks the whole festival because now everyone's looking at Jesus and he's saying, I'm the living water. I'm the source of spiritual life. And the authorities, the religious authorities are furious and they want to arrest Jesus right then and there. But Nicodemus, you might remember who Nicodemus is. He's the Pharisee who met with Jesus at night. Nicodemus steps in, stands up for Jesus and says, no, no, he needs a fair trial. He needs to have a hearing at least. And so the religious leaders leave without making a decision. But what it seems like happened here, so this, is, this has just occurred. Most of the religious authorities are furious with Jesus. And it seems like maybe a small group of them come up with a plan to trap Jesus in what they think is an impossible situation. So that's the backstory, and, and here we come into our text. So Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. So you've got to imagine the scene here. This group of respected religious leaders comes pushing their way through the crowd that is sitting or standing, listening to Jesus' teaching, and they come, they make a big scene, and they're dragging this woman, probably dragging a a barely clothed woman in, who I assume is crying and humiliated and terrified. And this poor woman, I mean, we're not going to say she's innocent, but she's being treated in a horrific way by these religious men. Now, I mentioned that these religious men came up with a plan to trap Jesus, And I absolutely think that this whole trapping a woman caught in the act of adultery was a twofold trap. It was a plan. So first, the Pharisees had probably heard rumors of an adulterous relationship. Maybe they even fully knew it was going on. And here they saw an opportunity. So they wait until they see an adulterous act taking place, and then they barge in and they grab this woman. And since adultery was technically punishable by death... The law demanded that any accusation come with a literal eyewitness testimony. Like you had to actually know, because this is a big penalty. This is death penalty stuff. So you needed an eyewitness testimony. It's not enough to say, I saw them going into the same house together. It's got to be, we kicked down the door. It's clear to, to me and this other guy what's going on. So we know what's happening. Hearsay testimony isn't accepted in a charge like this. So the question is, you know, how did these men just so happen to catch her in the act? Uh, There's something incredibly suspicious about the whole series of events. And then even worse than that is is a horrendous treatment of this woman by the religious leaders. They trap her in her sin so they can use her to trap Jesus. She's just a pawn in a bigger political game. As Stephen Cole says, he says, we tend to look on this woman in the story as the great sinner, and sometimes we overlook the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees are much worse. 
They're callously sinning against this woman. They're using her as a pawn. And we can't say for certain, but probably, probably she's a young girl. See, in the law of Moses, the penalty for adultery was death for both partners without specifying any specific means of death. But if the girl was simply engaged to be married, the penalty was specifically stoning to death. So the Pharisees come in and say she needs to be stoned to death, which gives us a clue. She's engaged to be married. How young were women at that time when they were engaged to be married? 14? 15? 16? We're not talking a woman in her mid-30s. We're not talking, we're talking a young girl engaged to be married. So when we read a sinful woman was brought before Jesus or an adulterous woman was brought before Jesus, we're actually saying probably, most likely, because she was engaged to be married, we're talking a frightened teenager was brought before Jesus. And if you know of power dynamics and, and that type of thing in relationships, I mean, how much culpability does she have? And that's a little bit speculative, but because the Pharisees say stoning to death, it's very specific for an engaged person, knowing engagement, you know, ages were pretty young, we can make some educated guesses here. Now, the religious leaders didn't have to do this at all. They didn't have to drag her into a crowd. This wasn't necessary. If they'd cared about her at all, they could have simply held her in private custody, brought formal charges against her, and moved along it that way. But no, she's just a pawn in their game against Jesus, and so they make her into a spectacle and humiliate her and drag her to, in an attempt to trap Jesus. And what we find out is these religious men can't help her. They can only condemn her. They can't give her a new heart. They can't give her a new life. They can't set her free. They could condemn her, but they couldn't save her. And they could destroy her, but they couldn't restore her. But in their haste to trap Jesus, they brought this girl to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who can restore all things. Jesus is the one who can heal. Jesus is the one who sets her free from condemnation and forgives her. Now here's the trap that the Pharisees think they've got Jesus in. Either Jesus would agree that the woman must be stoned, undermining his reputation as the savior of sinners, right? They go, wow, Jesus, I thought you were for us. So it undermined his reputation with the common people, but it would also get him into trouble with the Roman authorities who didn't give Jews the right to capital punishment. Or Jesus would say, no, we don't stone her. She would show mercy, and then they would say, ah, look, see, he doesn't uphold the law of Moses. We told you he was a false teacher. So that's the trap they think they've got Jesus in. Either he agrees that she should be stoned, and then he loses his support base, or he says, yes, she should be stoned, or he says, she sh uh, <laughs> I lost track of it. He, uh, she shouldn't be stoned. And then they say, ah, look, he doesn't uphold the law of Moses. He's a false teacher. And that's the trap. And that this was a deliberate trap to catch Jesus is also seen by the fact that they only bring one sinner to Jesus. You don't commit adultery all alone. So where's the man? Probably he's on the Pharisee's side in the trap and, you know, is allowed to escape. Oh, he slipped out the back door. Oh, I didn't see that coming. It's a setup. And the Pharisees lay it out, right? They say, the law of Moses says she must be stoned. What do you say? But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger, and they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again, and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Jesus' first response is silence 
And the Pharisees probably think they have Jesus at a disadvantage, right? They're like, ah, look, he's speechless. He doesn't know what to say. We've got him. We've got him. And so they intensify their efforts. They're demanding an answer, right? They're, they're probably shouting with that smug satisfaction of people who think their plan's going perfectly. They're using that kind of mocking tone of voice. Give us an answer, Jesus. What is it? What is it? Don't you know? Aren't you a rabbi? Don't you know what to say? They put on a show for the crowd to see, right? Because what they're really trying to do is, is to get the people to turn against Jesus. And all of this is simply setting the scene for what Jesus is about to say. They really couldn't have given him a better introduction And there is, of course, this great mystery. What does Jesus write in the dust? This is one of those times, this is one of those things that I wish the Bible would give me more information. What did he write in the ground? He went down twice to write in the dust. What did he write? And after all our speculation is over, we simply don't know. The word for write is used only here in the New Testament, and it can either mean something like doodle, or it can mean to make a list. So some have thought he listed out the Ten Commandments. Others have said maybe he did the Ten Commandments with the names of the the religious leaders beside the commands they had broken. I think whatever Jesus wrote was definitely of some significance, but it's his words that, that that John wants to focus on. And here's Jesus' verbal response to them. If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. I just want to do a little bit of a side note here because sometimes this statement has been stretched out to mean something like, let the person who is without sin be the one to pass judgment. And if that's what it literally means, then no one anywhere could ever pass judgment on anyone for any reason because none of us are without sin. So then it'd be like, oh, we can never judge anything. But John 7.24, Jesus tells us that we shouldn't judge according to appearance, but we should judge with righteous judgment. So here is what Jesus is no doubt thinking when he says these words, if anyone is without sin, let him be, be the first to throw a stone at her. He's probably thinking of Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21, which says that a witness must not testify falsely and they must not testify from malicious intent, right? So they can't bring someone into a court or, or before a judge simply because they want to wreck someone's life. If they do that, the punishment that they want for the accused would then be inflicted upon them. It gets reversed. So this law protects the rights of the accused and makes it very dangerous for people to use the law for their own crooked purposes. And the Jewish leaders would have known this. And so Jesus' words here remind them of the seriousness of their charges. Their motives actually do matter as well. So he's saying, hey, before you pick up that stone, look at yourselves. Make sure that you are morally qualified to put this woman to death. Make sure there is no malice, no deceit, no trickery, no dishonesty. Make sure you're not guilty of the same crime yourself. He's reminding them if they are testifying deceitfully or maliciously, they're actually signing their own death warrant. Although all of this is a moot point because the Jewish people were not given the right to capital punishment. If they were to actually do this, the Romans would not be happy about it. So this is all just a, it's a show, it's a game, it's like a political theater thing. But what we see here are the tables being turned, right? The woman is starting to look a whole lot better than these religious men who humiliate this woman, demand her death, all for the sake of trapping Jesus into saying something they can either arrest him on as religious authorities or that, you know, the people will discount Jesus. And Jesus just nails them on it here. Jesus saw the woman's sin He saw the Pharisees' religious hypocrisy and self-righteous sin, and compared to them, she looked almost innocent. 
right? Their sin is far greater because it's hidden in terms of, you know, pious religiosities. These self-righteous puffed up men come dragging this poor girl in and say, look at this sinner, look at her, isn't she despicable? And I mean, look at these self-righteous hypocrites. It's disgusting. And in the end, there's more hope for this sinful woman than there is for these manipulative, self-righteous, sinful religious leaders. Because having been caught in the act of adultery, she's closer to God's kingdom than they are. Because she doesn't deny her sin, they don't admit they have any. And that's the key. Those who believe they have no sin, that walk around in their self-righteous, prideful, religious hypocrisy are worse off than the ones who know they have sin and repent, or even the ones who know they have sin and just don't know how to, how to get out of it. And they're just looking for a savior. And I think we have in this story the gospel, the good news of Jesus in 11 verses, because what the law of Moses does, which is what the Pharisees use, is say the law of Moses says, the law of Moses points out sinfulness, but it can't save us. Because the law is impossible to hold on to. The, the religious men end up leaving because they know the words of Jesus were true, that whoever is without sin could cast the first stone, and they know they're not without sin. These religious men who lived their entire lives trying to adhere to every aspect of the law were sinful. The law of Moses points out their sin. They were as sinful as the woman they dragged before Jesus, but then grace is offered to this woman. Yes, maybe she did wrong. Again, I question exactly how culpable she is in this, but maybe she's done wrong, and Jesus does say, go and sin no more, so there's some wrongdoing here, but grace is offered. Jesus has the power to forgive her and to send her away with a new start. See, that's the gospel. The law of Moses says, Here's, here is what you are. You're a sinner. But the law of Moses can only point out our sin. It cannot save. That's the gospel. That's why we need Jesus, who forgives and extends grace. Robert Capone says that heaven is populated entirely by forgiven sinners. Such a good thing to remember. And so while I find that man-made religion is all about behavior management through adherence to laws, following Jesus is all about life transformation through the free gift of grace offered to us in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And this gift of grace actually frees us from the law because the law can only condemn, it cannot save. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, we've been released from the law for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Because of God's grace and the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus, there is no condemnation. And that's exactly what we see with this woman. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman, then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I think Jesus treats this woman with dignity and with compassion. A lesson for all of us on how to treat people whose sin has been exposed. I want you to notice the conversation Jesus has with her. First, he imparts grace. Does no one condemn you? Then neither do I. It's done. It's done. Secondly, he's honest about her sin. He says, okay, go and sin no more. So there's some sin component here. He says, sin no more. And he imparts hope. Go. 
Go, she can go. Jesus believes that this sin will no longer have power over her. She's free. Go and sin no more. She's free from that old life, that old stuff, that past. This doesn't have to define you. Go and be on your way. And some of you might feel like your sin is all that defines you. That your past is too ugly to be redeemed. And this encounter with Jesus reminds us that grace covers all sin, all shame, all condemnation. In Jesus, there's freedom from everything that has bound you, whatever had happened in the past, whatever's going on currently. In Jesus, there's freedom from everything that binds you. And the truth is that all of us are in some way like this woman. We are, you know, truly guilty in the eyes of a holy God. We, we all have sinned. We're helpless and unable to change our condition. We're lost unless someone steps in to help us. And that's why the gospel message is so powerful. Because just when we are about to be condemned, Jesus steps in to rescue us. This is what Paul means. There's this kind of interesting and curious phrase Paul uses in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.13, I think, is, is where Paul says that Christ has become a curse for us. What does that mean? It means he took our pain, he took our shame, he took our guilt, and the heavy load of our sin was laid fully upon him. This woman was not condemned by Christ, but he was condemned on the cross for a time for her sake. I mean, that's, that's the story of the gospel, is that we deserve death, but Jesus takes our place. And so we need to write over this story two other scriptures. John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And add to that Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's the practical points for, you, for us to consider. For those of us walking in the newness of life that is given to us by the grace of God through the forgiveness of our sins, we have a responsibility to point people to the grace that is offered them by Jesus. We have received grace. We must extend grace. We have received grace, we need to point people to the one who's given us that grace. The church is to be made up of people who are grace dispensers. That's a Philip Yancey term. Philip Yancey points out that the, that the beginning of John's gospel starts out by telling us that Jesus comes from the Father full of grace and full of truth. And Yancey makes a case in one of his books that the church has been really diligent in pursuing truth. He says, look at all the church councils and creeds and the volumes of theology and multiple denominational and church splits over minor theological differences as we aggressively pursue what is true. He says, we've not failed to pursue truth, often with ruthlessness and even anger. But Yancey says correctly, we should yearn for the church to pursue what Paul calls the incomparable riches of God's grace with just as much fervor and passion. Some of you might know what I'm talking about here. Churches that pursue truth but seem to miss grace. And we forget that truth is actually not a doctrine. It's a person. Jesus is full of truth and full of grace. And if you want to point people to truth, point them to Jesus. Yancey says often it seems that the church is made up of guilt dispensers, not grace dispensers. I'll give you an example. 
And during the AIDS crisis of the 1980s, Henry Nowen, who was a priest, used to go and visit an AIDS clinic in San Francisco. And this was before there was any type of drug or medicine, and, and they were still trying to figure out even what AIDS was. And so, you know, all, people who contracted AIDS would die pretty quickly, uh, but pretty agonizing deaths. And they would have wards, right? AIDS, AIDS wards where you could go and... And so Henry Nouwen would go and he'd listen to the stories of those dying of AIDS and he'd hear the stories of sexual promiscuity and addiction and self-destructive behavior. But in the midst of those stories, he recognized that every person really had a thirst for love that had never been quenched. And from then on, he said his prayer before he went in was this. He would pray, God, help me to see others not as my enemies or as ungodly, but rather as thirsty people. And give me the courage and the compassion to offer your living water, which alone quenches deep thirst. And there's a lesson from Henry Nouwen in this, and that we cannot extend grace to people we label as enemies. And we cannot extend grace to people whom we dismiss. And we cannot bring Jesus to people we loathe, which is why we were told by Jesus to love our enemies, to pray for them, and to bless them. And as Yancey puts it, when it becomes us versus them, Grace dies. And there's too much of that sometimes. As we diligently pursue what we think is truth, sometimes we fall into the trap of making it us versus them, and grace dies. I'll give you an example of what that looks like. At the same time as Henry Nouwen was speaking of Jesus and demonstrating grace and compassion to those dying in AIDS clinics, the Reverend Jerry Falwell Sr. was saying things like this. He said that God was bringing an end to the sexual revolution through the AIDS epidemic. He said this. This is a direct quote. He said, What we preachers have been unable to do with our preaching, a God who hates sin has stopped dead in its tracks by saying, Do it and die. Do it and die. Falwell's political organization, The Moral Majority, opposed government research into AIDS medication. The moral majority petitioned the federal government to say, you can't make medication for people dying of AIDS. It's God's judgment. Because in their minds, this disease was a gay problem or a sexual promiscuity problem. Falwell promoted the idea that AIDS was God's divine judgment on the nation. He said this, this is another direct quote. He said, AIDS is a lethal judgment of God on America for indulging vulgar, perverted, and reprobate lifestyles. Jerry Falwell and his moral majority decided this. They decided that sinners deserved what they got. Sin and die is what they preached. Sin and die and we will rejoice as you go to hell is the attitude they presented. Aren't you glad God doesn't have the same attitude that Jerry Falwell Sr. had? God doesn't say, as Jerry Falwell did, sin and die, I don't care. God is brokenhearted, he says in his scriptures, over every wicked person who dies. God's brokenhearted by these things. God, God doesn't say sin and die. God says, because you are sinners, I will die for you so you can be free and forgiven. Look at Jesus. A woman caught in the very act of sexual promiscuity, the law demanding her death. Jesus says, I do not condemn you. I forgive you. Go and sin no more. You don't have to hate people to stand firm in moral truth. In fact, leaving people to die agonizing deaths because you have deemed them to be sinners seems rather immoral, doesn't it? It seems to be exactly what these Pharisees are doing 
And that Jesus challenges them and says, well, why don't you be the first to throw the stone if you're without sin? Based on all we've learned about Jesus' life and his ministry, his actions and his teaching, I mean, you know, who demonstrated Christ-like character in that AIDS crisis? Was it Henry Nouwen who went to visit the sick and the dying to comfort them, to speak of Jesus with them and, and pray with them? Or Jerry Falwell who told his millions of Christian followers to ignore the suffering who petitioned the government to, to end any research into AIDS because this is just a judgment of sinners. I think the answer is pretty clear who demonstrated Christ-like character. What we find is that Jesus constantly demonstrates radical grace to people, especially the ones seen as notorious sinners. Rob Reamer says, the beautiful message of the gospel is that though you are deeply flawed, you're even more deeply loved. And so the church, following the example of our Lord and Savior, is to be a place where people receive grace. I think this is a Yancey quote. He says, the church brings forgiven people together with the aim of equipping us to dispense grace to others. And I want to close today with just an insight from Henry Nouwen, who says, we minister above all with our weakness. But too often, Christians operate out of a desire to be in control, to tell others what to do and how to think. But Jesus calls us to be servants and servants empty themselves of privilege and any sense of superiority. We have all received the grace of God, and it's now something we are privileged to extend to others. We point people to the source of eternal life, and we follow the lead of Jesus in being full of grace and full of truth. And I pray that this church would be a place full of grace and full of truth, where we would love each other, love our neighbors, and even love and pray for those who claim to be our enemies. I pray that people would see us as graceful people because this is what our Savior commands of us. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And some of you perhaps feel like maybe Jesus wouldn't accept you because of what you've done or even maybe what you are doing. But over and over again, we see that Jesus is not scared of our sin. Remarkably, he's not repulsed by it. He enters into the homes of sinners. He speaks words of truth, but also words that offer forgiveness and freedom. And so some of you might need to encounter Jesus like this woman caught in the act of adultery did. Jesus could have condemned her. He could have shamed her. But Jesus forgave her. And her accusers leave. And Jesus says such simple words, go and sin no more. And as I said, in the word go is forgiveness. Go, it's done. You're forgiven. And in the word sin no more is freedom. It's freedom. You're not, you're not bound to repeat your past. Things are made new. You're not a slave to your sin. You're free to sin no more. And I'm going to call the worship team up. And I just want to say, like, maybe this is a message that someone needed to hear this morning. That in the face of sin, a person caught in the very act of sin, Jesus pours out grace. Yeah, sometimes people have this idea that we can only encounter Jesus when our lives measure up. When we've got it all together. When we've got life all figured out. But we can encounter Jesus even in the darkness of our lives. In fact, sometimes that's right where we need to encounter Jesus. Sometimes we need to bring the shameful things to the feet of Jesus and hear his words, go and sin no more. It's done. You're forgiven. And for the rest of us, I pray that we would understand the remarkable depth of God's grace. It is just a never-ending grace poured out on the people that maybe we think don't deserve it, but that's what grace is. And we've received it, and we need to extend it and point people to Jesus who forgives and does not condemn. Let's worship together.